Well, it's my joy and privilege. One of the reasons I'm, I'm here this morning is because um, Pastor James has been gracious enough to fly up and uh, to fill the pulpit and to share the good news and to preach the gospel to you. He needs a little introduction. He is presently serving as one of the pastors in our sister church, Lighthouse San Diego. Uh, he brings their greetings and their love along with Pastor Patrick's greetings and love. Um, Pastor James, just get every opportunity you have to get to know him. He has been a dear brother for me, one who has spoken truth into my life, one who has helped shepherd my heart, held me accountable, and pointed me to Christ. And that has happened many times when it was unlooked for, but I look at it as that's when the Lord sent him to do what I needed, even when I couldn't see it. It's interesting to think about how our lives intertwined and how the Lord guides each one of our steps. Unbeknownst to me, I married the woman who sang at his wedding. Um, had no idea, you know, until I met him later. I also had no idea that the pastor who married him married Julie and I as well. And as time has gone on, we've seen all these things where the Lord was planning things well in advance in preparation for this friendship uh, that has served as a great encouragement in the ministry and in the pulpit. So it's with great joy always um, that I call upon my brother, Pastor James, to come in and bring the word. Well, good morning. Um, what a joy to be here with you this morning. If you can turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of John, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. It's a lengthy text, but I felt like it would be helpful to go as a, seeing it as a unit. And um, if you would stand once again for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, starting from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I wash, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind, and how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So a second time they called a man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered to him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, said that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You join with me in prayer. Let's pray. Mercifully, Sovereign Father, cause us to see your mercy afresh this morning, but also daily, hourly, and moment by moment, that it would comfort our souls, renew our strength, steal our conviction, embolden our witness, cultivate our unity, give zeal to our mission, and grip our hearts. Let us know in our entire being, in our minds, in our affections, the unfathomable depth and endless height of your eternal grace for those who are found, and I pray will be found, in your Son, Jesus. In Christ's name, for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, of all the stories in the Gospels, this one of an unnamed blind man being healed by our Lord Jesus is perhaps my favorite gospel account. Because as a shy, backward, awkward man, I could identify with the nobody who was once blind but now sees. Like Apostle Paul, when I'm in my right mind, when I'm not proud and stupid, I know the sheer wonder of God's grace for this most unworthy sinner. I can identify with Paul in 1 Timothy 1, where he shares that though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy. He says that a couple times. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost or worst of all. But I received mercy. See, when you and I come to a place where we vividly see the rebellious autonomy of our past life, we see that we fall short in daily life, outside of righteousness that is not our own, that we deserve just wrath and hell from a thrice holy God. But instead, we receive superabounding mercy, incredible grace, and the priceless treasure of God Himself. Then we're really astounded that not only God saved us, but you get overwhelmed by any amount of privilege that he would grant on top of that. That he uses us, changes us, blesses us in ways that we never thought possible or ever imagined. It's texts like this one. I remember again, it's here I have to admit how undeniably loved I am, despite whatever else is going on in my life. Therefore, I can say I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. 
This morning, I want us to see three things in our text. Number one, I want us to see the unfailing sight of Christ. The unfailing sight of Christ. Verses 1 through 7. I want everybody to notice that the only person's name that is ever mentioned in this entire chapter is the name Jesus. And ultimately, isn't that all that matters? That we know the one who knows us. Life is all about Christ, and that's joy-giving, that's real security. It's fitting because in a previous chapter, Jesus said he is the light come into the world, and despite being in constant conflict with darkness, we see him undeniably bring sight and light to this blind man. In fact, multiple times, Isaiah prophesied that specifically the Messiah would, quote, open the eyes that are blind, Isaiah prophesies repeatedly. Only here, it's actually happening. The Messiah, the Son of God, has come, and that by believing in Him, we might have life in His name. Sadly, we know most, through history, even today, refuse to believe. Yet hope shines as the blindness of a beggar doesn't stop Jesus from saving him. We learn that the greatest blindness is the pride of unbelief, but even more that the greatest seeing or sight is faith in Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The greatest blindness is the pride of unbelief, but even more the greatest seeing is faith in Jesus Christ. Even here in America, despite all our incredible advances in modern medicine, you know that a person goes blind here in this nation about every 20 minutes? In contrast, this man was born blind. And outside, people born with cataracts, so that even with surgery, their eyesight still remains permanently blurry. But if you are born with congenital blindness, you'll never see, at least in this life, outside a divine miracle. So when Jesus arrives on the scene of this man's life, everything changes. But the greatest miracle was not the opening of his physical eyes, but the opening of the spiritual eyes of his heart in order to see and believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior. As Jesus passed by, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus takes the initiative. You notice that Jesus, it says, we're told, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. He didn't just notice him, he saw him. Jesus was seen differently than how the rest of the people were seeing this man, including his disciples. Jesus saw him because he loved him. Likewise, I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was running hard away from him, and he saw me. And before that, like the poor beggar, I couldn't see. I wouldn't see until his amazing grace caused me to see. We confess the truth of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, past tense, lived in the passions of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we had no desire for him, made us alive together with Christ, and it is by grace you have been saved. The disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sadly, they didn't see the man as an object of mercy, but as a subject for theological discussion. They wrongly held to the widely held false theology that personal suffering is always, always due to some personal sin. So in their mind, either it was his parents' fault or that it was his even in the womb. So Jesus quickly refutes that in verse 3. He says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Of course, Jesus is not contradicting the universal sinfulness of fallen man that we know, generally speaking, suffering is a result of sin due to the fall, because Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into the world. Yes, sin produces suffering, but not all suffering by an individual is a result of a specific sin that they did. Sometimes that may be true, unknown to us, causing sickness, even death, as Paul warned the Corinthians, but we don't know. So we shouldn't go around accusing of such like Job's friends. At times, 
There also may be consequences from sin, even to the children of parents. Because of drinking alcohol when one was pregnant or rejecting God so that the kids wander with mom and dad in the wilderness for 40 years. Or by no fault of one's own, by a blood transfusion. But here, and in most cases, no particular sin led to this man's tragic blindness. And to say otherwise, here would be cruel and untrue. Jesus dismissed this simplistic theology of suffering as as does Deuteronomy 24, 16, which says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers, but everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. There isn't always a direct link between one's suffering and one's sin. The honest answer is it defies our explanation. It's certainly not karma. Rather, we must heed what Jesus said in Luke 13, that the people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, they didn't die because they were worse sinners than the rest of us. No. So you too, Jesus says, need to repent before your hour has come, before it's too late. However, in this instance here in John chapter 9, we are given a divine answer with a hint of purpose clause in verse 3. This just happens so that, or this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the power of God might be shown forth providentially in this man's circumstances, that God's power and mercy and grace might be displayed and manifest. F.F. Bruce Comments, God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I would add that God ordained this. Look, we know God is not morally responsible for the evils in this world. Sinful people are. That is why you put locks on your doors. Not because of God, but because of man. In God's sovereign plan, he nevertheless uses this tragedy to bring about good. So Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day when no one can work. There is an urgency, brethren. Suffering is a, is a call to work, not simply to reflect. Spiritual blindness is a call to witness, not merely wax on. Life is short. It will be time to rest when our day is done. The day is for work. So the disciples' focus was backward while our Lord's focus was forward. It was not about analyzing how this man became blind, but it was about giving God glory for such good. What happens next is the very demonstration of what Jesus had just declared. He sometimes healed by just saying it. We know that in the gospel accounts. He is sovereign. He does as he pleases. He is not subject to any specific instrumentality. But here, he makes some mud clay mixture, puts it on the blind man's eyes, commands him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off there. More miracles of the blind being given sight are recorded of Jesus than any other category of his healing ministry. This is thoroughly messianic of God. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever read of a man born blind, being healed, nor did Jesus' followers ever do so. Again, Jesus takes the initiative. No one asked him to do it. Not even the blind man asked him. He just saw him in love and chose to give him sight. Now, John inserts a, a parenthetical about Siloam, meaning sent. I do not believe that's mere filler. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste the word. Repeatedly in this gospel, Jesus is referred to as the one sent by the Father. We hear Jesus in this gospel say, my time has not yet come. Then eventually he says, my hour has come. And we see different themes in John and one important theme in the gospel of John is the word believe. The word believe occurs 95 times in this gospel more than any other book in our Bible. John wants us to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father so that we can believe. Can you imagine the blind man going there with his heart pounding within his chest with the possibility of seeing, what if this works? And so as he washed the clay off at the pool of Siloam, perhaps the first thing he saw was his own reflection in the water for the very first time. And lifting up his eyes, he saw people around him, the sky, birds, buildings. 
Before this, darkness was all that he knew. He had no conception of red, green, blue, or orange, let alone sunsets or the intricacies and glories of nature. He never knew what his mother looked like. At best, he could only feel the warm tears on her face. He went home seeing. So do you really think he said, well, I I should go back to my spot at the temple and resume my begging or someone else is going to cut in on my business? No, he, he went home, he ran home, he burst into his house, shouting everybody, I can see, I can see, I can see. He came back in wonder and being wondered at. When I became a Christian, it was sort of like that for me. I couldn't wait to tell everybody, my parents, my brother, my friends, my teachers, my classmates, and I did. Some rejoice, but most could care less. But change my life forever. Matthew Henry says, Souls go weak and come away strengthened. Go doubting and come away satisfied. Go mourning and come away rejoicing. Go blind and come away seeing. Thus, if we know how blind and dead we once were, then we also know that God can send light into the darkest heart, soften the hardest heart, cause blindness and prejudice to pass away. Never give up. On the lost. Never give up on praying for your loved ones who don't yet know him. We too were once spiritually dead, dead, flatlined, six feet under, spiritual corpses, and he raised us to newness of life in an embrace of adoption. He can do that for your friends and family. We've been made alive. Number two, I want us to see the unwilling blindness. The unwilling blindness of unbelief. The unwilling blindness of unbelief. Verses 8 through 34. The central major section here. His neighbors, the people who knew the man, were so astonished that some refused to believe it was actually him. It it understandably caused a sensation. It was the talk of the whole neighborhood and eventually the whole city. People born blind, they don't just come home seeing. This kind of thing wouldn't go unnoticed even today. And it's not just that the beggar sees, but his entire appearance, demeanor, and countenance have been utterly transformed. He sees, but he's also seen as a different man. It was so shocking. Some people didn't believe it was really him. Nah, it can't be him. It must be someone who looks like him, like a doppelganger, right? Others were confused, saying it seems like him. And then verse 9 tells us he kept saying in Greek, he repeatedly kept saying, I'm him, I'm him, I'm the man. So they finally asked, how did this happen? He answers, the man called Jesus, made clay, anointed my eyes, told me to go to Pulisome, and now I see. Well, where is Jesus? I don't know. I don't even know what he looks like. He never saw Jesus, only heard him. He heard the word of Christ. In some ways, this is a beautiful illustration of our own salvation. Christ pursues dead and blind sinners, reveals himself to those who had no desire for him. It is not the other way around. We, we didn't find him, he found us, or no one would be saved. And only by repentance and the obedience of faith, humbly embracing the gospel, is one saved. In contrast, the Pharisees used this man's joyous condition instead as an, another opportunity to attack Jesus. Previously in chapter 6, Jesus said, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. In chapter 7, even his own brothers wouldn't believe, despite speaking the truth boldly, silencing his opponents with irrefutable logic and undeniable evidence. In chapter 8, Jesus asked, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Why? Because in the last chapter, Jesus said they were children of Satan. Of course, they weren't happy about that. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he was God, and so they tried to stone him at the end of the previous chapter. And yet, there's another miracle that we miss. He walks right through them. They got stones in their hands, ready to throw and assassinate him. And they're powerless. He just walks right through, unscathed. You would think, Witnessing such that they would pause and repent. They willfully refused to believe 
We see man's natural state is both unable and unwilling. It is both. They are blinded by Satan, but they are also equally self-deceived, lying to themselves. Pharisees again ask him how he received his sight. So he tells them, and how, and how do the Pharisees resp- respond in verse 16? This man is not from God, for he does not what? Keep the Sabbath. That's their reasoning. According to their self-righteous man-made rules, Jesus violated the work prohibition of Sabbath on at least three accounts. He healed on the Sabbath, number one, which they said you're not supposed to do unless it's a matter of life and death. He made clay, which is like kneading, like bread, work, and he anointed the man's eyes. That's work too. And so in their mind, they argue good men don't violate the Sabbath. Jesus broke it, ergo he's not a good man. So in their tidy thinking, he's not from God. Instead of rejoicing in the mercy of this outstanding miracle, All they can see is an invented reason to discredit Jesus. Because they are predetermined not to believe. They resolve that nothing will change our minds, no matter the evidence. That was once me. I hated the Bible, Christianity, Jesus, and the church. Anything associated with organized religion as an opiate of the masses until what? He took a hold of me. Leon Morris writes, those so firmly in the grip of darkness saw only a technical breach of their law and could not discern a spectacular victory of light over darkness. They disputed with the man and in the process revealed their inward blindness. Yet even some of the Pharisees asked, how can a sinner do such signs? They were unable to explain away a genuine miracle with the man healed right in front of them. So there was a division, or literally in Greek, a schism among them For people will always divide over the true Jesus. So they go after the blind man next. What do you see about him since he has opened your eyes? And listening to these men debate, his understanding is growing. Jesus is no longer a man named Jesus. Notice he is a prophet. That's the highest place that he can muster at that point. He is siding with the pro-Jesus camp, if you know what I'm saying. Only we're told in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. I mean, did you get that? These guys are so prejudiced against Jesus that he's a sinner, that he cannot be from God, that it cannot even be a miracle. Their whole premise and presupposition is irrational, illogical, and indefensible. Their bias controls their entire investigation and interpretation, as we see today in our culture. Imagine that, this guy was blind and everybody knew it. But now they're saying, you're lying. You, you were never blind, were you? You were faking it. Or maybe Jesus used a, a twin and, and he switched beggars on us because they look alike. They will try anything to explain away the obvious. Okay, let's call the beggar's parents to prove our theory that this is all a farce. The parents arrive And they ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? There are three questions there. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And how does he now see? The first attempts to discredit the miracle altogether. That Jesus isn't from God. It couldn't have been a miracle. Only he is God and it was a miracle. They act like they've already won the argument. By the way, that's how it's always been and more than ever. People don't care about the truth, can't handle the truth because they don't want the truth. They only want to do whatever they want and to believe whatever they want in order to justify and keep doing whatever they want. Well, the parents answered the first two questions honestly. Yes, he is our son and yes, he was born blind. The third question they answer not honestly but evasively. They passed the buck. He's of age. He's a big boy. Ask him. See, they knew the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and wanted to avoid the danger and trouble their son was facing. So they were very careful, neither to incriminate themselves nor to rejoice for their son. However, John tells us plainly why they didn't stand up for their son in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Because anyone who confessed Jesus to be Christ will be put out of the synagogue. Proverbs 29-25 states, The fear of man proves a snare. These parents were not the first to trim the sails of conviction and conscience to a passing breeze for fear of a storm. 
What happens here is really sad. I mean, they should have been rejoicing in the wonderful liberation of their son. But I think, perhaps, and I, I could be wrong, because our text doesn't reveal this to us, perhaps they had abandoned him long ago. Or just using him for the money he could get them, hence why we find him begging. Not at home being cared for, not being educated. Somehow along the line he had become a burden. They weren't willing to pay the price for their son, but being put out of the synagogue was also something we need to understand was an extremely serious penalty in that culture that we do not understand. You forfeit not just social relationships and religious status, becoming a heretic in that culture, but you might even lose business and even in some cases the ability to buy and sell. You became a pariah. You were seen as hellbound. And you might literally die from hunger or have to move to live among the Gentiles. Humanly speaking, it was very understandable to fear this very real threat. But for the parents to abandon their son right in front of him, can you imagine the pain the son must have felt? Warren Wiersbe insightfully comments, the Pharisees want to get rid of the evidence and the people were afraid to speak the truth. Sounds like today. Disappointed by their interview of the parents, getting no help from them, their bloodthirsty resolve would not be satisfied until Jesus' head was on a platter. So they call back the man who had been born blind a second time. And when I analyzed this chapter, the beggar was actually asked to repeat his story at least seven times, directly and indirectly, on top of the Greek implying in several places that they kept asking, kept badgering him to get in line with their hateful agenda. Yet here, I think, is the most spirited part of the count. He withstands them with vigor. He calls their bluff. He turns the tables on them. He exposes their bias with the utmost simplicity and takes these sophisticated elites to school. Far from shaking him, it actually clarifies his position. So he comes out, out of all of this with a deeper appreciation of Jesus than before. Yet the irony is they should have been the first to believe. So they open up the second interrogation. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. That sounds odd. Give glory to God. The question is, why did they say that? Basically, they're trying to get him to promise that he will never again give Jesus credit for the great thing that had happened to him. Remember, they told Peter and Acts to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. It's kind of similar. But let me explain, giving glory to God here has two possible meanings that one, with, with that one purpose in mind for both. First possibility is it could mean in the spirit of Joshua 7.19 to Achan who lied, right? Hey, own up, fess up, tell us the truth, admit your whole story is a lie and that you're a fraud. Because remember, God knows everything. Give him glory. You know Jesus is a sinner, so tell us that and we'll stop bothering you and we'll even forgive you. The second possibility, which I think is the right answer and is more likely in this situation, is this. Give glory to God because you know what? All Jesus did was put clay on your eyes and tell you to go wash at the pool of Siloam. That's all he did. Anybody could do that. So Jesus didn't heal you. It was God who healed you, not Jesus. You know what I'm saying? God healed you, not Jesus. We know the man. He's a sinner. He eats with tax collectors. He breaks the Sabbath. He's not from God. Give God the credit, not Jesus. And by the way, do you now see the irony behind all this? They are now admitting a miracle happened. Hypocrisy. They knew it. They knew only God can heal a blind man. That's how hard their hearts were. They're the ones who are blind. They should have trembled in fear at this point, especially after the last chapter. The fact that Jesus' identity as God incarnate was staring them right in the face. The truth of Christianity is an intellectual slam dunk. But it's a moral, spiritual problem. Despite all the evidence, despite the Bible-bearing constant scrutiny of unbelief over millennia, attackers haven't proven one thing where our Bibles are wrong. Yet people will persist against it, even now among people who claim to believe. More and more people are saying, who profess to be Christians, the Bible doesn't say that, or I know the Bible says that, but then why bother believing the Bible at all? 
I love the beggar's wonderfully authentic and powerful answer. He answers in verse 25, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know about Jesus. I got nothing bad to say about him. I barely know the man. But yo, I was blind, but now I see. He's not concerned with finer points of rabbinical law or the obvious politics involved. He's just overwhelmed by divine mercy and knows that Jesus is at the center of it all. The Pharisees respond, we know, it's an, the Greek is, a, is emphatic and arrogant. We, we in our sociopolitical religious universe, we and not you dumb beggar, we religious know, leaders know and you don't know. Right? Pride says, I know, I know, I know. Right? Maybe we did that as kids with our parents. Yada, yada, yada in Hebrew. That's what young men say with their lips or their attitudes towards older men, don't they? Mom and dad correct us and we respond, I know, I know, I know. Maybe you don't know. And even if you do know, there's pride. It's all a game to save face. Can we say, man, yeah, I believed that all along, but I forgot. But we need to be warned, brothers and sisters. The Pharisees revered and studied the scriptures more than all of us combined. They prayed, they fasted, they never missed a service. They gave sacrificially, but they were the principal agents of Satan and having Jesus murdered. And they are not extinct. Folks like Pharisees occupy the seats of churches all over America. And sometimes it's us. We can all be mean and cruel and self-righteous, not kind, tender, humble, yet firm with truth like our Lord who came full of grace and truth. Folks like that have lost their sense of joy in the grace of God. If we're honest, sometimes that's us at moments. Continuing, they asked for the umpteen time again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So he answers verse 27, I told you already. You would have listened. See, he's not intimidated nor impressed by their knowledge or robes or high positions or popularity. As a once blind man, you think he's not into outward appearances because he never was. But he was not blind to human nature. In fact, because he once didn't have sight, his, it accentuated his ability to listen. No one is pulling the wool over his eyes. He didn't just fall off the truck with dirt in his fingers and turnips in his pockets. He wasn't fooled. He knows that they failed with him, with his parents, with Jesus. They have exhausted everything they knew. They got nothing to do except weird the poor guy with endless questioning again and again. Their tactic here is to, to force boredom and exhaustion so that they just might catch him unguarded and in some inconsistent statement. To discredit him as a witness to his own healing. We say that they are fishing for something. For what's not actually there. That's what bitter, partial, hateful, suspicious people do. They conjure up things, conspire narratives, exaggerate faults, attempt to make hearsay and gossip sound like irrefutable facts when it is a load of nonsense. Let alone inadmissible in any court of law. Keep pressing, keep questioning, keep doubting, keep interrogating. Why? Out of the hope that eventually they can catch a little jewel or morsel they can use against somebody they are resentful against, towards. And here the object of that sinful attack is Jesus Christ. Ha! You said that, but now you're saying this. No, the answer is the same. I told you the truth already. The beggar says, I guess they're mere say-so, and we know so. He says, I was blind, but now I see. Why is that not proof enough for you? William Henderson says, facts are more stubborn than unsupportable opinions. Here the beggar's masterful sarcasm, verse 27. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, do you want to become his disciples too? Of course, they didn't like that at all, right? I told you already, multiple times. You obviously don't need new information. Do you want to become his disciples? And it infuriated them. They kept asking the wrong question. It was not how, but who. It was not how, but who. Just change the order of the letters. Not inheriting his parents' cowardice, exasperated with their tactics, disgusted by their prejudice, he brandishes the sword of irony back against them. 
So raging back, pulling themselves up by their own self-righteous bootstraps, they retreat in defeat after being taken to town by this uneducated beggar who wants to follow Jesus of all people. It says in verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we, we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They just abuse the poor dude. They can't even bear to say the name Jesus. They were not the kind of people who would ever admit defeat, humiliated by a beggar, defying their supposed authority. They scurry into their hole with a weak sauce response, right? You know who we are, right? And who we know, you're a nobody, falling a nobody. Beggar then responds, come on now. This entire time we've been repeatedly saying, we know, we know, we know. And now you're saying, we don't know? Which is it? That's interesting, because this is the first time you admitted ignorance about anything, and he rubs it in. It's amazing, astonishing, marvelous, bewildering, remarkable. You you don't know Jesus is from God? You religious experts who know the Bible inside out can't work out something obvious like this? You pretend to know everything, but you can't figure out where someone who just healed a man born from blind actually comes from? Ever heard of a man born blind being given his sight back? Never since the beginning of time. Never recorded the entire Old Testament. Isaiah said that this would happen when who comes? The Messiah would come. Brother is giving them a practical theology lesson. And they're losing big time. Only they won't admit it. Man says, because if Jesus weren't from God, then he couldn't have healed me. And I don't know about y'all, but I learned that in Sunday school, didn't you? So he's defeating the Pharisees with their own previous argument. The idea that God hears the prayers of the righteous but rejects the prayers of the wicked is found throughout the Bible. 1 Samuel 8, 18, Job 27, 9, 35, 12, Psalm 18, 41, 66, 18, Proverbs 1, 28, 15, 29, Isaiah 1, 15, 59, 2, Jeremiah 11, 11, Ezekiel 8, 18, Micah 3, 4, Zechariah 7, 13, John 8, 21, Acts 10, 35, etc., 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 But the very idea of giving Jesus credit was obnoxious to them. Bested by a beggar, resorting to cheap ad hominem, they attack him and not his arguments. They say he must have been born in utter sin. They cast him out of the synagogue just as his parents feared. Only they were powerless and will always remain powerless to cast this man or any true believer out of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Finally, alas, third, I want us to see the undeniable miracle of being found in Christ. The undeniable miracle of being found in Christ. At the end of our text, some Pharisees, they overhear Jesus' loving encounter with the formerly blind man, and they ask him, Are we also blind? We know that Jesus did not primarily come to judge in his first coming. John 3.16, right? We know. God so loved the world that he didn't, and verse 70 says, he did not come to the world to condemn the world. In his first advent, that wasn't his main purpose. Nevertheless, the result of rejecting Jesus rather than believing in him is judgment. For the end of John chapter 3, the last verse says, those who do not believe in the Son, God's wrath remains on that one. We are either for him or against him. It is interesting that Jesus' answer is sort of paradoxical and and unexpected. You would expect our Lord to answer that question, are we blind too? Yeah, you're blind. And he doesn't say that. Because he says, if I say you're blind, you might use that as an excuse. Because if you're totally blind, have zero spiritual understanding, then perhaps you could claim that you can't be blamed for ignorance. I'm not going to call you blind because you know the truth. They were not just unwilling by Satan's blinding to believe, they were also unable by hatred to believe. They were fully responsible because they sinned willfully against knowledge. They knew he was from God, but they dug in and denied it. Therefore, Jesus says, you're not really blind. Therefore, your guilt remains on you. You are not excused. 
It's all about realizing one's need. The self-satisfied Pharisees thought they had it all together, that they had arrived. It's not that they thought that they were perfect, but they did not know the serious of their imperfection and their infection. They claimed to see and know. If they had truly seen and had known, they would have welcomed Jesus, believed in Jesus. But because they had just enough to know, yet acted against that knowledge, Jesus says, you are guilty. You claim to see, but you choose to behave like you're blind. Therefore, your sin is not taken away. Mankind is not totally blind. Romans 1 says, unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness, are in denial. There is no true atheist. They know and they choose their way, not God. Eyes wide open. Before the blind man I see was never once a part of his vocabulary until now. And for us, when we became Christians, until then. Sometimes, though, we too can act more like the Pharisees because we can see sound doctrine. We can see the sins of the world. We can see Jesus is the answer. We can see the moral degradation and chaos. We can see change in ourselves that wrongly congratulate ourselves. We're not talking about an overfocus on our progress nor lack of, but what we need to remember is that we are unworthy sinners, beggars who need to keep on seeing, seeing Christ. Therefore, I feel I shouldn't ever boast that I did this or that. Rather, I wonder, why me? Why me of all people? The sinner that I get to live, that I get to serve Jesus, to have you as my brothers and sisters and friends, to get to eat and breathe and to walk this planet, get to smile over anything, let alone have a wonderful wife and precious children, rather than getting the justice I deserved. And so we preach reconciliation, not reparations. That I offended a holy, terrible God whose wrath should have been mine but is now no more. Those who know mercy, preach mercy. Because we escaped justice purely by the sovereign kindness of our Savior. Amen? <coughs> Go back to Jesus so we get to wrap up. <coughs> Excuse me. He takes initiative again. Notice Jesus finds him. He found him. The good shepherd always cares for his sheep. Jesus knew his parents abandoned him. That society had abandoned him is mistreated, excommunicated. The man knows our Lord's voice and yet not his face. He would soon, in the glory of the gospel, in the face of Christ. See, it was not enough to know his name or to say he was a prophet or a man of God or some vague higher being. Jesus asked a very personal but necessary question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's a messianic term found in Daniel 7. Believing comes by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. In the next chapter, Jesus will say in John 10, His sheep know His voice. His voice. The man recognizes His voice. The man eagerly answers with trembling excitement, Who is He, sir, that I might believe in Him? Jesus said, You have seen Him, and it is He who is speaking to you. Lord, I believe. And we're told the man worshipped Him. Belief and worship always go together. This is the one and only instance in this entire Gospel of John where Jesus is being worshipped. Blessedness is not getting a house. It's not growing a nest egg. It's not going on vacation. Blessedness is not surviving COVID good things. No, true blessedness is to know Jesus Christ. That's blessedness if we never had any of those other things. Like Paul's scourgings, the still bleeding knife wounds in my back, the tear-soaked pages of my Bible, Bible, like mater's dents, all my life has witnessed that I am loved by God. Even when I was exhausted, scared, abandoned, depressed, lost all confidence to ever fill a pulpit again, when I wanted to run away, when I wanted to drive myself into a light pole, only years ago, all my losses Jesus knew, all my failures He forgave, all my tears He kept in His bottle even for this worst of all sinners. He alone deserves our constant homage, our best affection, our deepest trust, our immediate obedience, our most intimate fellowship, and our undying proclamation. We should be thankful for so much, but most of all, our amazing salvation. 
Desi Rao writes, there is no kind of evidence so satisfactory as this to the heart of a real Christian. His knowledge may be small, his faith may be feeble, his doctrinal views may be at present confused and indistinct, but if Christ has really wrought a work of grace in his heart by his spirit, he feels within him something that you cannot overthrow. I was dark and now I have light. I was afraid of God and now I love him. I was fond of sin and now I hate it. I was blind and now I see. The hungry man eats and feels strengthened. The thirsty man drinks and feels refreshed. Surely the man who has within him the grace of God ought to be able to say, I feel its power. End quote. Do you? If you don't, I invite you. Go to the cross. You cannot save yourself any more than a drowning person can save himself. Humble yourselves. Repent of your sin. Turn away from sin and turn to God. And he will save you. Let me end with this. Final comment. Think about the blind man being abandoned by his parents, excommunicated from his culture, and rejected by his community. He had a very hard day. But it was the best day of his life. Wouldn't you agree? Because he saw Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's all we need to know today and the rest of this year and the rest of our life. That's all we need to know. We need to see Jesus moving forward. That's all we need to see. That's, all, that's our need, and that's a need that will always be met. Let's pray. Father, the greatest privilege is to know you, to know your Son, to know your Spirit. No amount of worldly acclaim or health or wealth or security can ever substitute for knowing you, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Thank you for loving every one of us, for knowing what each of us as individuals goes through day by day. Things that no one else knows but you, that in your omnipotent grace we can cast all our anxieties on you because we know that you care for us. So we humble ourselves knowing that in due time you will exalt us. Time and time again you've proven yourself faithful, yet we long for your return. We long not just to hear your voice in your word, but one day see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.